podcast run by the graduate students of the English department at NYU. Today, we are discussing the theme of work. We are asking the question, is academic work really work? Because the conversation is somewhat long, we've split it into two segments. In this episode, you'll hear Gina and Kim introduce their positions on the question of work in the academy and respond to Pat's questions about the word work, about the economic logic of academic labor, identifying as a worker, and teaching versus research. The next episode will follow the question of teaching into modes of solidarity, utopian thinking, and economic analysis. It gets a bit radical at the end. You can find both episodes on our website, electrictext.net. That's electrictext, all one word, dot net. My name is Pat Abatel, and I'm here with my colleagues, Gina Dominic and Kim Adams, and today we're going to be talking about work in the academy. Great. Thanks, Pat. Um, so this is Gina here, and I'm going to start with uh, my take on why I do believe that what we do here in the academy is work. And I think my stake in claiming that um, that what we do is work concerns, for me, the rights and expectations associated with the labor force in the current capitalist economic system of which universities, like it or not, are a part of. And I think this claim is particularly important for graduate student workers, given widespread financial instability, and for women, given the history of women's work, so to speak, um, being undervalued or, in Marxist terms, rendered invisible or inassimilable. Um, the circumstances and obstacles that graduate students and professors encounter in the workplace, I think, are both similar and unique to those encountered by other professionals. Unique because of a history of and tendency for academics not viewing their work or establishing their workplaces as such. Uh, for instance, in the academy, um, it, you know, the academy is not immune to the gender gap in wages and representation that plagues the rest of the nation. Uh, according to the American Association of University Professors, at doctoral universities, women make 78 cents on the dollar, which is close to the national average of 77, though um, I've seen that, that number debated. Uh, however, the academy proves a special case when one assesses wage gaps in specific positions or rather faculty rank. So at full professor, for instance, women make about 90 cents to the dollar, which is far beyond the, the average, far above it. Um, but male professors account for 26% of faculty, while female professors only for 84 so the wage gap decreases also at the lower ranking positions, um, but these are also positions with more females. So for example, there's a three to one female to male ratio among instructors, for instance, which is a lower rank uh, in, the, in the university system. Um, so it would seem then that it's only a matter of time before women not only receive equal pay, since that seems to be um, at least 
better in the academy, but also equal representation among more prestigious faculty ranks. Uh, but such thinking doesn't necessarily account for another special case, I think, in the academy, which is the fact that women are also more likely to drop out of the academy before being considered for these top positions. So this can be the result of everything from good old gender discrimination or family and parenting responsibilities um, to career focus. So for instance, women tend to prioritize teaching over research more often than men do. Um, I, I love this, um, this, this professor at Washington State University, um, Kelly Ward, I think she, she talks about this really, really powerfully and she calls this symptom the, the leaky pipe phenomenon, which I actually really love. And, and basically what she means is that there's a pipeline to the sort of full tenured professor and that this is far more certain of a path for male scholars than it, than it tends to be for female scholars. Um, now, one could argue, um, very reasonably, I think, that that this gender-based employment concern, or these gender-based employment concerns, are not unique to academia. Um, but I'm of the opinion that the particular history and social, ideological, and emotional environment within the academy, um, that that compounds standard workplace issues. Um, because, as I, as I mentioned, scholars have tended not to view their work as work. Um, academia has become an environment with fewer explicit management structures, terms of accountability, and review and grievance processes. Instead, we tend to operate under widely held assumptions that scholars answer only to their colleagues, quote unquote, um, other generally higher ranking scholars within and outside of their particular collegiate community, and that the quality of their work can only be measured against the quality of these others. This makes for a highly subjective pipeline, in, in my view, uh, where it's difficult to glean just when one is working enough and to whom exactly one answers. And so within such an ill-defined working environment, it should come as no surprise that the challenge of a work-life balance is exasperated among scholars, with many working over 40 hours a week uh, and some in, in excess of 50 hours a week. Uh, according to the Chronicle of Higher Education, nearly half of academics show signs of psychological distress with mental health issues ranging from everything from perfectionism and depression to eating disorders, alcoholism, and drug abuse. Um, but for me, what's more shocking and concerning is that this challenge of maintaining a boundary between one's personal and professional lives is often viewed with, at best, ambivalence and, at worst, smugness within the academy, where there seems to be a culture of acceptance regarding the physical and psychological strains of the career. Um, in an article from The Guardian, for instance, Nadine Mueller, who's a lecturer in English, literature, and cultural history at Liverpool John Moores University, um, she points out that academia even intentionally crosses the private professional boundaries by often describing scholarly work as, quote, doing what we love. Um, and so because our minds are quite literally our bread and butter, difficulties with work also inevitably translate into, or at least affect in some way, difficulties at home. Um, and then finally, the last thing I'll say is that I think this is especially concerning um, 
you know, for me and for other graduate student workers who are often dealing with incredible financial instability. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that we are currently witnessing a real explosion of labor movements at the graduate level specifically um, as these workers fight to have their work recognized and then compensated fairly as just that work. Um, so I suppose my views in general or, or my concerns have to do with good old fashioned exploitation and how when we don't sort of label what we do as work and, and take on um, the rights of the worker that this can lead to uh, real tangible uh, problems in the end. Um, but Cam, I know you, you also have some thoughts on, on uh, work and the other side of this. Um, so, thank you, Gina. So, Gina, because Gina thinks that uh, labor in the academy is work, she has actually done some work in preparation for this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> and I have not. Um, uh, but I have thought about this question in the past, and, and I am thinking about it now. Um, and I do think that um, that there are some problems with considering what we do in the academy as work. Um, and some of those problems align very closely with uh, the concerns that Gina talked about, um, about uh, women's labor, women's work, um, and about uh, a sort of Marxist perspective on labor in the academy. Um, and so one of the ways I thought might be good to get at this problem is to talk about um, to talk about women's work as a form of work that has traditionally been not valued as work that might, we might consider as comparable to academic labor. In, in the 1970s, uh, predominantly in Italy, there was an international movement to try to get women's work in the home valued in terms of capitalist economics, right? Um, to try to get government subsidies for women's work um, to, in, on the theory that if women's work was valued in the same terms as men's work in the current economic system, that women would, be, would receive more social equality, something like this, right? And, and of course, this movement failed dramatically. Um, but uh, one of its, I think, well, so Angela Davis has an essay um, in her book, uh, was it women, race, and class? Um, that uh, where she like takes this uh, women's uh, work movement down, um, basically on the grounds that uh, basically on the grounds of their um, economic analysis. So this movement says um, women's work within the home is actually incredibly valuable. This is not what Angela Davis says. This is what the international uh, pay for women's labor movement says. Uh, women's labor in the home is valuable in capitalist economics because it's it's like a suppressed source of value. Um, that uh, women do all this work to prepare laborers for the market, right? They bear children. They perform this reproductive labor. They raise the children. They feed the men. They clothe the men. They clothe the children. And these the men and the and the children all go out to work. Um, and that they. Um, they bring home, you know, so, so that they, that part of their capacity as workers is generated by the unvalued labor of women's work in the home. Um, and of course, 
this relies heavily on a bourgeois model of, of femininity and women's work, like, you know, 19th century working class woman barely has time to, there, there is very little cleaning and feeding going on, right? Um, even though they are responsible for whatever gets done for that. Um, but, uh, where was I going with this? Um, so Angela Davis takes down this this theory because she says capitalism eh, it doesn't actually require it in its most in its most brutal forms like and her example is uh, South Africa under apartheid as like an extremely brutal form of capitalism that um, that it just does away with family life entirely that it puts workers in barracks industrializes the sort of care of, of the working body um, and that that is it doesn't it doesn't need to be paid for, or it could be paid for much cheap, more cheaply than the sort of um, what you get for, by having a woman stay at home, right? That's actually fairly expensive in the system to have a woman's body not laboring in the capitalist economic system. Anyways, um, so where does this leave us with academic labor? Um, basically, I think what it suggests to me is that um, our labor is not currently valued in the economic system that, that we have as labor um, and that trying to make it as uh, trying to make it valued in this way is um, is maybe not the best plan um, because it's uh, sort of ends up putting our making our work susceptible to the brutal logic of, of capitalism as it is as a system now um, and rather than letting it exist as a zone outside it. So this isn't exactly Angela Davis's argument. It's Angela Davis's argument in the essay is basically, we should just do away with housework. <laughs> so like, shouldn't happen anymore. Women shouldn't perform this sort of demeaned labor. We should industrialize it just like the most brutal forms of capitalism do. Like there should be nobody who is performing this labor. But I don't think there should be nobody who is performing academic labor. I think it's important for us to do um, this work that we are doing, whether or not it's work or not. Um, and I think its importance is something that must exist outside of the structures that we currently have for valuing labor. Um, and I mean, that will get us into all sorts of things about priesthood and whatever else, but like, I think, <laughs> I think that it's, it is important for there to be a space outside capitalism, and that's part of what academic work is or does. Thanks so much. Um, I've been frantically taking notes, and so I hope um, I can maybe just um, ask a couple, I have a couple general questions, maybe about um, how you guys are conceptualizing this conversation um, in the first place, and then I, I have a couple questions for each of you, um, and then feel free to ignore uh, my questions as well, and um, ask your own questions, because you guys have given this so much thought. Um, I think I was struck, since you invited me to be part of this, by your um, continued, and it seemed very intentional, use of the word work instead of, in place of labor. And I was wondering if that was, in fact, intentional, um, and if so, uh, what, what was the strategic motivation for, for that choice? And if not, maybe that was an unconscious decision, but... Yeah. That's a good question because what you both you and I are talking about is mostly labor in a sort of Marxist sense or in a 
in a sort of organizing context that has come out of Marxist movements, the labor movement, um, which is maybe not the case for the entire podcast as it was originally conceived. Mm -hmm. and, and, but I don't know, what do you think, Gina? No, I think that's a fabulous question considering, um, <laughs> uh, for instance, so I'm a medievalist and my, my work is in medieval literature. And work, I mean, in Middle English, a lot of the times meant deeds, um, deeds associated with the church. Um, you do good works. Um, and so it doesn't, obviously, it doesn't always carry this, this framework of the, of the Marxist labor. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, I think that both you and I are, probably would be a better suited term for what we're talking about is labor. Yeah. Um, and so then, that, then my question is, um, I seem to, maybe pessimistically, seem to believe that the university, like it or not, like I said, is is already in the capitalist system, right? So for me, you know, Pat's question honestly didn't occur to me because I wasn't thinking of academia ever outside of, yeah. of that system. And so um, my question is, is that, okay, so if we decide that we need to start valuing um, our labor differently, or we need to start valuing our, maybe we do want to use the term work in this case, if we want to start valuing our work differently, how do we do that in such a way that also addresses some of the very legitimate, I think, concerns of yeah. bodies in, yeah, you know, laboring bodies. Yeah, laboring bodies. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's useful that you brought up uh, work in relation to the church, right? Because uh, I like the other thing that was sublimated in my talk that is about our work in the academy is the like tradition that links us to the priesthood as like mm -hmm. bearers of knowledge. Um, and I I wrote this down from your uh, thing when you said um, scholars only answer to their colleagues. I originally thought you were saying scholars only answer to their callings, <laughs> which is like kind of amazing, right? It's your calling that, of course, yes, scholars answer to their callings to produce work to like, uh, you know. And we also didn't talk about work as like a work, right? right. Like a, like you'd produce a work um, of scholarly literature, which is different from you don't produce a labor. Um, although our talk about labor had a lot to do with women uh, and the other prominent use of that word is like labor as in giving birth. So yes. anyways. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of intersections yeah. that we haven't totally. Yeah, because both of you seem to be identifying the ways in which um, uh, the work of being a graduate student or the work of being a professor um, fits into a certain economic logic. And yet there's also this um, aspect that's more uh, vocational maybe more deeply personal. Maybe it does have a link, and maybe it actually maintains a kernel of, of spirituality in it, a kind of, that kind of um, um, rush of intellectual vigor that I think really draws us um, um, bodily into, into committing to, to this. And Gina, it seems to me that um, you were kind of calling for us not to make that distinction um, in a hard and fast way, that that was precisely maybe one of the dangers that you were calling our attention to, because to overemphasize, over-spiritualize, over-dramatize that aspect of our work leaves us open to exploitation um, 
uh, in general, given the fact that we're um, already conscripted into uh, a capitalist system. And I, I, I don't know if that's um, uh, a correct interpretation of what you were saying, or yeah, no, I think that's that's perfectly what I yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, I think it does leave us vulnerable um, in the sense that. Um, so I'll just share a quick anecdote. I have a uh, friend uh, at Boston University that's trying very very diligently to organize their, the graduate students in a labor movement and um, sort of had a meeting to fill out the, just take, take a temperature reading of the other graduate students and if they, they were, if this was something that they felt they needed, uh, a union in that sort of sense. And um, my friend left quite disheartened actually because the overwhelming sort of mood was that, well, I don't consider myself an employee so why would I need representation as such and is that because like who wants to identify as an employee because that's that's bleak and to uh, to acknowledge the banality of one's position as an employee is is difficult or, or is that is that I, where do you think that comes from I have no idea. well I mean I was completely taken aback by it um I mean maybe coming from NYU which you know the first um you know private university graduate student unions here. But so also, you feel the fucking blood pours of capitalism way worse in New York than you do in Boston. <laughs> that, that could be it as well. However, I think that there's some sort of like, I don't know, is there some sort of uh, masochism or, I, I don't know, I, I feel that sometimes I feel like, oh, if I'm enjoying it too much, it couldn't be work. Like, oh, um, you know, I, I, I find myself saying this um, often, like, when I talk to people about what I do and I say, oh, well, you know, they, they, uh, they pay me to read books, yeah. you know, and, and what could be better than that? Like, getting paid to read books. And it seems almost as if we're denying the fact that what we do is work when we are talking to people outside our field because we don't have work that is structured in the same way as them. Actually, an so another one of my objections to considering our work work is that our, our work labor, however we want to say it, is that um, it uh, sort of forces a logic of production onto our onto our work, which you know is probably inevitably upon us already, anyways. But it assumes that we have to produce. You know, uh, labor produces widgets. Academic labor produces books. Articles, that kind yeah. of thing, right? Um, uh, how did this get? How did I get here from where you were? Well, I was just saying that I I tend to um, oh that we demean our work yes. to other people, right? Mm -hmm. So like mm, if uh, you know if my boyfriend has to get up at five a.m. when he's on a surgery rotation in med school, even though he's also in school, it ha looks a lot more like work, right? And he has to be there from six a.m. to six p.m. Um, you know, mm -hmm. observing surgeries, still it has the constraints of a work day mm -hmm. associated with it in a way that our uh, our work doesn't. Um, so that might be something to consider. Right, and I think that, I mean, I have the same experience, right, where, um, you know, my husband gets up and goes to work every day at the same time and he comes home. And then, you know, there might be nights where he has extra work to do, but on the weekends he doesn't. And um, And sometimes, you know, I can't write unless I'm inspired. And sometimes that happens at, you know, 9 a.m. on a Saturday or yeah. 6 p.m. on a Saturday, right? So so I think you're right. I think that it's the structure that that sort of gives us these feelings that, that it's not 
it's not labor or it's not in within the realm of of what people can might consider labor um however there are a lot of times i wish i could stop working yeah. um where i do feel that um i need to it could be something as simple as i need to stop thinking about this for a little while right yeah, um simple. And so when I say that, you know, our minds are our bread and butter, they quite literally are. They, I mean, that is the tool that we work with. And I think then that automatically or inherently produces a difficulty in separating your professional and personal life because they, they just overlap so much, particularly in the work that we do. Um, but do we want to? I mean, I think that part of the reason we go into part of the reason we go into academia is because we don't necessarily want to separate our pleasure and our labor, right? Like they pay us to read books, mm -hmm. the things that we were doing for fun before. Well, let me let me ask about. Um, I, I I'm really intrigued by um, uh, Kim your um, kind of pun. And I think really evocative pun, uh, work and then the work, the as the the uh, the product. Um, um, I'm wondering about kind of the two aspects um, of um, academic work that that you both brought out, um, teaching and then kind of research. And I think as we're kind of trying to um, get at, it seems like we're trying to get at right now um, the aspects of that work that don't necessarily fall under an economic uh, logic, um, perhaps dangerously because um, uh, it leaves us vulnerable and in a position where we, if we don't think of it as labor, then we can't ask for help or we don't know where it begins and where it ends. But it also, um, Kim seems to be a kind of the kind of utopian kernel in the project. It actually helps us maintain a position outside of that economic system or or imagine a, a way of living living otherwise um, so that seems to be a real impasse and I'm wondering if one does that make is that I guess I hope that a that's in keeping with with um, where you're going but I, I'm wondering if one way to get at that is to think about the relationship between the two aspects of um, academic work which we might think of as teaching versus research and I know that I talked to a colleague um, who was writing about um, the labor movement here um, t uh, 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 two years ago um, for a publication, uh, a leftist publication, and she wanted to make the argument essentially that like I think it makes sense to unionize graduate student laborers insofar as they're teachers. I don't think it makes sense to unionize graduate students because that aspect of their um, of their work isn't isn't labor and therefore isn't unionizable. And she and um, and so this publication was obviously like, well, we don't want that article. And so she so I thought that was a really interesting. Um, distinction, but I'm wondering how you both um, uh, organize the relationship between those two parts of your life. Are they radically separable? Um, do they occupy different uh, positions in relation to you know, the question of labor? Do you organize your time differently in relation to them? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's a nice question to ask the two of us because I am teaching right now and Gina is not. Okay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think they're radically separate, especially teaching as a teaching assistant, right? Like, I have a fantasy that maybe when I'm teaching my own courses, I will teach material that I also 
want to use in my research. But you know, I don't get to pick the books. Uh, you know, I I teach the books that are assigned in the core curriculum course I am teaching, um, and most of the time they're books I haven't read already, so I have to read them, um, and then I have to figure out either how to teach them along the lines of the lecture the professor gave, or how to teach them sort of divergent from that, but in a related way. So, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, constraints that are put on teaching that make it very different from, from like, one's, I don't know, learning or research kind of work. Um, and do I think teaching, I think teaching is much more like labor. I, I think I agree with your friend who was writing the article. Like, I think that um, it's much more unionizable in the sense, and I also think, actually, um, in my uh, most depressed political moments about the academy, I think teaching is what saves us. Like, teaching is the, teaching is the built-in outlet for at least for the humanities. It is the part where we uh, like engage our ideas with the world. You know, it's not it's not really cuz it's not like Kant's fantasy of the like uh, written public, right, where you write these articles and they engage with the political questions and all of the philosophers read them because, in fact, all of the philosophers are the only people who read them and the philosophers are only, like, three people. Um, so, or in our case, it's the literary critics. Um, so, and then in that case, it ends up sort of being a bit of a circle jerk. But I think teaching is, is inherently points us outward into the world and that that orientation outward into the world does have something to do, I think, with, with work or labor as we're defining it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that um, I, I, I'm definitely begrudgingly of the same opinion, um, even, even despite my, you know, my wanting to say that research is work as well. Um, I definitely feel like I'm working a lot more when I'm teaching. Um, and but I think again this goes back to a certain there are certain to me structures in place that we recognize in other professions that we sort of recognize in teaching so there's a level of accountability um, you are accountable to your students um, you have to grade their papers. You've told them you have to grade their papers. You've told them that you're going to get them their papers back by a certain time. These are deadlines. You know, you're all of a sudden placed in a world where it it's structured more like a job, right? Whereas with research, um, you know, you could submit it to a journal. You don't necessarily have to. Um, you could turn your dissertation in a, into a book. You don't necessarily have to. Um, once you're past a certain level, um, a lot of those sort of accountability structures sort of go away. Um, and it becomes all about sort of keeping up with your, with your calling and your colleagues. And that's it for the first half of the Electric Text episode on work. If you would like to listen to the second half, 
or you would like to learn more about the Electric Text, please visit our website, electrictext.net. That's electrictext, all one word, dot net. You can also reach us by email at electrictext at gmail.com. That's electric text spelled with two X's. E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C-T-E-X-X-T at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. Books really are amazing. Well, that's all for now. We'll catch you next time on the NYU English Graduate Student Podcast. The Electric Text was created by our cohort Anna Moser, Berenger Ryu, Chad Hagelmeyer, David Sugarman, Owen Quinn, Gina Dominic, Kimberly Adams, Ruby Lowe. Penelope Myers, and Vignesh Sridharan. This episode includes the voices of Patrick Abatil, Gina Dominic, and Kimberly Adams. Kimberly Adams edits our audio and runs our website. Our theme music is composed by Owen Quinn. The electric text is supported by the English department at NYU.